On this dynamic episode of StarPod Trek, we consider the Star Trek content in Starlog Magazine, issues 71 and 72, from 1983. Burt Bruce considers William Shatner's latest role, T.J. Hooker. Lou, Rich, and Max discuss the Star Trek content that was featured in Famous Monsters of Filmland. Plus, the Star Trek II novelization by Vonda McIntyre. The Making of the Wrath of Khan book by Alan Asherman. The Trek novels of 1983 and more on this episode of... Star Pod Trek. Greetings and felicitations. Hip hip hurrah, tally ho. Hey my little Georgia Peach. Hey Puddin. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. We grew up in the 70s and 80s and watched Star Trek reruns when it was on syndication. On each episode of our show, we consider the contents in two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss what it was like to be a Trekkie years ago. But we leave the non-Trek-related content to our other podcast, Starpod Log. Feel free to follow along with your personal copy of Starlog magazine. If you would like to comment on a subject or give us feedback, please send an audio file to us at starpodlog at gmail.com. Who knows, we might include your comments on a future episode. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcast app and look for us on YouTube for bonus content and media reviews. Feel free to join our Facebook group, too. We look forward to meeting our listeners at the following upcoming conventions. Monsterama, the incredible classic sci-fi and horror convention in Atlanta, Georgia, returns on Halloween weekend. Why are Star Trek fans so excited about attending this convention? They have a lot of Star Trek guests this year. Nicholas Meyer, Laura Banks, Tim Culbertson. Stephen Manley, Alan Howarth, and Clayton Landy, plus a lot of a lot of other guests. So we're going to have Khan's Navigator as well as one of Khan's henchmen together at a convention together with Nicholas Meyer. Wow, you can't beat that. Probably the first time in Trek history that this trinity has come together for a con. Yeah, great con reunion. In the realms of horror and sci-fi, this is the convention to go to Halloween weekend. We love Monsterama. Plus, there's going to be a concert on Friday night. This is a very unique experience. Yes, they're having a concert with Alan Howarth, who did the um, the audio effects for Star Trek The Motion Picture and, and all the Star Trek movies. So that should be a, a very interesting concert. I mean, I'm excited to see it. Our Trek's giving tradition continues as we will attend Starbase Indy in Indianapolis, Indiana, November 24th, through 26th. Join us for this amazing Trek family reunion. Why do we love spending Thanksgiving weekend in Indianapolis? Starbase Indy is a great Star Trek convention. It's so much fun. And their main stage is built like the bridge of a starship. There's no convention like it that puts this much time and effort into the total fan experience. Highly recommend our listeners checking out Starbase Indy. The guests this year, they have Dr. Muhammad Noor, and they have Moxie Ann Magnus, and they have Bonnie Gordon from Star Trek Prodigy, and Larry Nemechek. So all great guests, um, and wonderful Star Trek fans as well.
Starlog Magazine, issue number 71, cover date, June 1983. Communications, letters to Starlog Magazine. From Patricia Stewart in San Francisco. Last month I printed part of a letter from a reader who feels that most of today's science fiction movies are not worth the praise they receive from fans. He indicated that films like Star Trek II are shallow and unimportant when compared to more serious social concerns. I believe that a movie's importance is a very personal affair, and to prove it, here's another letter I received recently. I think there are many, many of you who share this lady's feelings. Okay, so let's just break it down in, in portions, because this is a lengthy letter. This was the era when people were trashing Star Trek because it wasn't hard sci-fi. It was considered soft sci-fi. Star Trek is... I, I guess they want to call it soft sci-fi because it's more than just sci-fi. Because it's it's about the stories and the people, and and it emphasizes the the characters more than than the science fiction parts of it. Exactly. Movies like Silent Running, sci-fi fans loved. Logan's Run, Two Thousand One: The Space Odyssey. These are incredibly thought-provoking issues that either dealt with environmentalism or the lifespan of humans, or the exploration of where do we came, come from. Wrath of Khan, it was an action movie. Yeah, but it it did have some uh, some heartfelt stuff in it. It, it. it, very, it was very emotional. It did. It had the human element in there. But it, it's kind of funny that back then, the hardcore sci-fi fans oftentimes were not... And we discussed it in, in earlier issues of Starlog magazine. There was like this... There was this gatekeeping mentality amongst hardcore sci-fi fans if you like star trek you weren't really a, sci- a sci-fi fan if you weren't reading everything from robert heinland and bradbury and isaac asimov if you i mean if you weren't just pumping out all these novels you couldn't just be like look i, I wasn't reading all those at this age in 1983 i was a star trek fan but i still consider myself a sci-fi fan but this is so we can see we have to encapsulate the era of when this letter was written. Okay, so now uh, Patricia Stewart says, Back in the 1960s when Star Trek premiered as a series, I was a wide-eyed college sophomore. My two roommates and I were intrigued by the series and its ideas because those ideas, we told each other, were just what we believed. And those are all the ideas that, that were, you know, you had friendship amongst the co-workers and equality amongst people of different backgrounds and different nationalities. And everything else we love about the original series track. So it makes sense. I felt, as did much of my generation, that with good intentions, a little hope, and a strong right arm, all things were possible. We were ready to tear down our tired old world and make it shiny and new. In our minds, a genesis of sorts. Star Trek gave us the possibility of a future that we honestly could be and were and we were enchanted. So what do you think about her feelings there? That that is true. Star Trek gave us that hope for the future and 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 made us think that it that it's possible, you know, something we want and something that we could achieve at some point. And from what I learned from Star Trek is I can't force anybody to change, but I could change myself. Right. So so with that hope and with those good intentions, we we could make changes. And that's what this fan was expressing. Another fan says, As I write this today, I'm 34 years old. My old roommates and I have done a lot of living in the ensuing years. 
Sue is an officer in the Air Force. Carolyn is a senior research associate at Salk Institute. And I have been a TWA stewardess for 12 years. Life has not been unkind to me and my friends, but it also hasn't been what we expected. So, so I mean, this person is just saying, like, you know, without saying anything bad that happened, but life hasn't really turned out as they expected. Well, r- reality kicks in. Right. You you know, you never know what's going to happen. You just, you live your life, you you do the best you can, and You're and not going to change the world just, just because you have the best intentions. Yeah, we get it. Good. I mean... So far, we're, we're, we're following along with this letter. We see where she's coming from. And the next person says, In the years between 1966 and 1983, I lost the man I loved in Vietnam. One of us lost a baby, and one of us lost a brother. We've all had to work hard, and we've had no time for all the bright ideas we hatched late at night when we sat talking in the dorm. So here we are in 1983, grounded in reality paying bills, and taking care of business. More than a bit cynical and not near as much fun as we used to be. There's no point in wishing to return to college days, but I would give much to have some of the conviction back, born of a happy childhood, that all things are indeed possible. Last summer, when I saw the new Star Trek movie, it occurred to me that perhaps my friends and I are not hopeless cases and that we might be able to stop feeling sorry for ourselves. It's possible that we have acquired a narrow view. So, so this person is saying, like, seeing the Star Trek movie kind of made them a little more hopeful, because because going through life, they had kind of lost lost some of their optimism from their childhood. I remember watching The Wrath of Khan with my father, and my father said, "This is such a good movie because it shows how." And and it all depends again, all depends on where you are in your life on how Star Trek affects you. But he walked away from it saying, yeah, this is what happens when you get older. You start changing. You start reflecting on things. Now, me, I was a kid. I wasn't looking through Captain Kirk's eyes through an older person, a middle-aged person's eyes. I was looking at it through a kid's eyes who just loves action and excitement. And I'm finally seeing my heroes again, full force in a movie that I grew up with watching TV. But that's the beauty of Star Trek. You see it through the lens of where you are in life. And I could see how she is looking now at the show or at this movie in a different light. Yeah, that makes sense. Near the film's end, Admiral Kirk is asked how he feels, and he says, I feel young. I inferred that, once again, he felt ready to handle anything the cosmos could dish out. And that, I suppose, is what it's all about. Now it occurs to me that perhaps aging is only a feeling, and recapturing the sense of wonder is the key to remaining young, being ready to meet whatever happens with strength and humor, and to rejoice in the day. Odd that it took one line from an imaginary character in an imaginary future to give me a new perspective on reality. So, yeah, Kirk saying the line, I feel young, is kind of like, like so he kind of felt rejuvenated from the whole thing. And that, that was part of the movie was feeling old, as Kirk had said in the middle of the movie. Exactly. And because he, he had a birthday at the beginning of the movie. So it's that about. That whole intro scene with him needing glasses. That was the, the change. They're all changing now. They're all getting older. Exactly. Yeah. It was about getting old and then, and then something happens that makes you, um, want to live life again. 
Of course, it's hard to say like in the movie. So, so losing his best friend made him feel, made him feel young, but it was the idea of the, of Spock sacrificed himself. And the fact, as Kirk said, the death took place in, in the shadow of new life. Uh, the new planet was created. Exactly. So as those hardcore sci-fi naysayers would put down Star Trek, when we analyze it, true, it might not be hard science fiction to the point where it has all these issues in your face like other science fiction of the of the 60s and 70s had, but it had subtle moments and that would that's what make Star Trek so special is the subtlety and the personality and and the personal experiences. I mean, when my my mother hit me with the news that, did you ever think about that the age you are right now, Poppy had four grandchildren? And I look at the pattern, I'm like, holy cow. Like it or not, that's the reality of it. I'm grandfather age. So you're old. I mean, that's the way we look at it. <laughs> that, yeah, I mean, but that's that's what, think about it. Kirk got hit with the news that he has a child, a grown child. That changes your perception of of your life in general. It does. It makes you look back at everything and, and wonder what else you could have done. Now let's consider Carrie O'Quinn's comments on this. Okay, so now Carrie O'Quinn said, But that's just the point, Patricia. It isn't odd at all. That's what art, including movies, is all about. Giving people new perspectives and refreshing their spirits. Star Trek is a perfect example, and you are not alone. There are millions of fans who are inspired and motivated by the original TV series, but in the almost 20 years that have passed, I dare say only a handful have hung on to that positive, glittering view of life that the world of the Enterprise yielded. So true. This is why, especially the original series of Star Trek, has lasted going on almost 60 years now. It it gives fans that hope, and it gives them something to think about. And we we kind of feel like, um, as older fans, that we've we've grown with it, and the the franchise has grown with us. Absolutely true. Log entries: latest news from the worlds of science fiction and fact. Leonard Nimoy takes command of Star Trek Three. Star Trek Three is beginning pre-production, gearing up for an early August launch date. Leonard Nimoy said that plans are proceeding along a normal course and his expectations are high. Nimoy spoke with Starlog publisher Carrie O'Quinn in early March about the feature now slated to be released by Paramount in late May 1984. I'm having the time of my life, Nimoy exclaimed. At that point, he was waiting to read executive producer Harv Bennett's finished first draft of the screenplay. Nimoy describes the themes in Star Trek III, that being loyalty, commitment to friendships, commitment to relationships, commitment to ideas at one's personal expense if necessary. We want to tell a story about friendship and loyalty. All right, now I want to talk about this in comparison to that letter we just read. Isn't that an important thing going forward for humanity? Of course, there are other issues that are always going to be pertinent. But isn't loyalty to family, friends, co-workers, isn't that part of the human adventure? Yes, having friends and being loyal, building friendships, and with family too. And and on Star Trek, they, it was this crew. They were, they were like family to each other. Nimoy goes on to say that if Paramount accepts the screenplay, pre-production work will be on schedule. 
Some five or six sets of ideas have been mentioned by Bennett and Nimoy, and depending upon the final script, Lieutenant Savick, David Marcus, and Carol Marcus may or may not return. Now, how did you feel when you first read this 40 years ago? I mean, I, I know I wanted those characters to return, and I especially liked Savick. Remember, previously it was announced that only William Shatner has solidified that he was going to be part of this picture. So still, everything else was up in the air. In fact, Nimoy says that none of the cast members will have script approval, nor will have such a clause written into the director's contract. There's just an assumption that if a director is unhappy with a scene or sequence, it's pretty useless to expect him to give you a terrific scene if he doesn't like it on paper. New Trek book series launched. Timescape Books has expanded its paperback publishing program, beaming up the Star Trek characters for further adventures. Editor Mimi Panich explains that the increased schedule was a response to both excellent sales since 1980 and in anticipation of Star Trek III. So let's talk about some of the books that were released in 1983. Black Fire by Sunny Cooper. That's one that we just reviewed on Ladies' Trek Library as well. Um, yeah, Blackfire was a fun book about Spock basically becoming a pirate. <laughs> and, I mean, and a lot of people had problems with it, but I always thought it was good. I enjoyed it. Triangle was released after that. Uh, Triangle was by Sandra Marshak and Myrna Colbreth. And they're um, the same ones that wrote the Phoenix books, which... Well, I enjoyed the Phoenix books when I was a child, but didn't like them later on when we reviewed them for um, for Ladies Trek Library. I mean, I mean, these two ladies—they they wrote several novels. I mean, they were basically fan fiction writers, and so all of these books that I mean, they they were big Spock fans, even to to the point of of kind of belittling Kirk. And so that's sort of it's continued on in this book, Triangle, where Kirk and Spock are both in love with the same woman. It's it's a very strange book, like all of their <laughs> novels. How about Web with the Romulans? Uh, that was by M.S. Murdoch. You know, I really don't remember as much about that one. So it must have been kind of mediocre, I guess. Yeah, this article gives some backstory on the Web of the Romulans. So about Web, Web of the Romulans, it says um, it was an unsolicited submission three years back when Star Trek The Motion Picture premiered and Timescape's uh, publishing program began. And and I totally agree that it was after Wrath of Khan that people started really getting more into Star Trek. Because if we look at the, the book schedule from the motion picture to Wrath of Khan, there are only a few books a year. When they're realizing, wait a second, we missed the boat on so much of the merchandising with Wrath of Khan. We could pump out some books. And so to take older manuscripts... And just tweak them and put it into a, mod a modern at that time setting of what was Trek fans were looking for. I could see where the publishers were coming from. Yeah, they started releasing more books eventually. I mean, at this time, uh, this schedule was only, what, five books in 1983, but that was a that's, start. It's essentially every other month. I mean, that, that's a normal pace for reading. I mean, remember when we were reading in the mid-90s Star Trek books? I, I couldn't keep up with them. I just could not keep up. Yeah, that's when they started doing several a month. Yeah, yeah. that was crazy. So I, I actually like this schedule. A.C. Crispin came out with Yesterday's Sun in 1983. Yeah, great book, and that's one of the more popular Star Trek books. And Anne Crispin, of course, became 
a, a very well-known writer in Star Trek fandom. Um, and Yesterday's Son was a sequel to um, All Our Yesterdays. It, it said that Spock had a son with Zarabeth, and Spock in the book went through the uh, Guardian of Forever to find his son in the past. It, it was a, a very good book, and there was a sequel to it a few years later, too, that was excellent. Did you ever meet A.C. Crispin? Um, yes, I did. I got her autograph. Yeah, she was um, she was inter- an interesting writer too. She was, uh, yeah, I think at the time I saw her, she wasn't she wasn't as much into Star Trek. She had kind of moved on because of, I think, some negative experiences with Star Trek books. But she she was inter- an interesting writer to meet, though. Robert E. Vardman wrote Mutiny on the Enterprise. Yeah, that one that book was it was okay. I remember. Like like the mutiny. Well, if I of course I guess I can give spoilers, but it the was a forty year old book. Yes, you can give spoilers. <laughs> but I mean, I know it, it. I remember it was caused by some outside force that was affecting people's minds that made them mutiny. And I also remember something in the book that sort of made people dizzy whenever they wanted to commit violence. And there were there were Klingons. There was a Klingon ship in the book, and it, it was such a memorable line. Scotty thinking that he discovered a new thing that he called the Klingon two step. <laughs> <laughs> which was you take two steps and you fall over because of the something that effect, that made you not be able to commit violence and so that's what it did to the Klingons it just made them fall over if they couldn't commit violence so that was the Star Trek books from that year I mean this article mentioned that Ian Crispin's Yesterday's Son is another unsolicited submission which proved too good to reject yeah I can see why and, and you know that one also seems like another a bit of fan fiction because you know, the idea of Spock having a son with, with Zarabeth, I mean, that's like, yeah, it seems like that would come from a fan. But I love things like that. <laughs> Definitely, yeah, Again, not gonna, that that's a bad thing. We're, right. we're going back to the why hardcore sci-fi fans of especially the 60s and 70s did not like Star Trek because of the fact that it, it gave fan service. Well, those, these are the type of things that I love. I care about these characters. I want to see their growth. I want to find out what happened, especially characters that were on the, the original series that only made one appearance, like Zarabeth. Because yeah, because everyone found Zarabeth intriguing. I mean, because she was a love interest of Spock. So I mean, if you can write this kind of story and if you can do it well, then why not? Maybe Pantesh goes on to say, the books will just be getting better and better. I'm really proud of the talent we found and hope that fans agree. She added that the 1984 lineup will feature even more novels. Also, we can look forward to Wanderer Books' pocket softcover children's division. And we'll talk about those books another episode of Star Pod Trek. They're wax, Jim, and this is Cement. DeForest Kelly gets immortalized in cement at the Six Flags Movie Land Wax Museum in Buena Park, California. His prints join those of fellow Star Trek cast members Leonard Nimoy, James Doohan, and Persis Kambata. That's nice. All right, my parents brought us here. We saw this wax museum oh. in California. I, I have to say, we were not people of means of any sort. I mean, it was it was an era where my father worked and my mother stayed home, took care of the kids. But we did go there probably, I want to guess, maybe probably around 1986, 87, something like that. It was an amazing wax museum. I mean, just recently, we went to the Madame Tussauds Wax Museum here in Nashville, Tennessee. Eh, it was all right. 
half hour you see the whole thing. Yeah, the one in Nashville was was kind of small. I was expecting something just, especially the price you pay. I was expecting to be there for some time. This one in Hollywood truly was amazing. It had all different types of movie sets there. And then when you got to the Star Trek section, now remember it was the original series set. They that's where they modeled all the characters after. You actually walked onto the bridge. It was a full size TOS bridge, and it had the crew there. I mean, my brother and I were just awestruck by it. It was fantastic. So they did more than just the wax figures. They actually had the set, which is cool. Yes, whereas from what I understand, a lot of modern wax museums don't go through all that effort. It's kind of just a figure on a pedestal. Yeah, they just want to just have the the wax figure and that's it. Yeah, with something of a background. This was an entire bridge that you got to walk. You got to see, like, essentially, you were in... Maybe you got to walk a few feet into it. You weren't able to actually touch the figures or go near them. Video log. Paramount Home Video was so successful with the 3995 Star Trek II cassette that they have released Airplane 2 at the rock bottom price of twenty nine ninety five. Wow, another William Shatner classic. <laughs> so they're releasing it a little cheaper. The great bird of the galaxy, Gene Roddenberry, once said, It isn't all over. Everything has not been invented. The human adventure is just beginning. Starpod Trek, celebrating Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future. My old friend, do you know the Klingon proverb which tells us revenge is a dish that is best served cold? It is very cold in space. And also in space, no one can hear you scream unless it's Khan! <laughs> wow. Hey, if you're not awake now, you or before you, you are now. You sound just like uh, Bill Shatner, by the way. There you go. And not, there are three not, idiots, three old, idiots that should be shot into outer space. Max <laughs> Overnighter, Lou Melagrana, and Rich Hurley, also known as Dr. Durant. And if I haven't woken up everybody else in the house with that screaming. <laughs> that was fantastic. That's going to be the yeah. best part of the whole podcast, that scream. You make yeah, sure I think that. I think they could just cut it right to that, and you know, there we are. There we are. Podcast is over. Thank you. Yeah. At the end, Thanks for having us. <laughs> Hold it for like ten minutes. Yeah. All right. So, what are we talking about today, guys? We are we're talking back. about uh, famous <laughs> monsters. We're actually in famous monsters land this 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 episode, as opposed Fantastic. to Starlog, and it's famous monsters issue one eighty seven, and we are discussing the film Wrath of Khan. Which um, is, in a way, probably one of the Star Trek films with the most horror-like elements in it, I would say. And perhaps that's why it appeared in, in Famous Monsters. But I think the real reason was, was, was back then Famous Monsters was trying to compete with Star Wars. So they figured they had to put a lot of these types of movies into their magazine, branching out from uh, the, the typical monster fair. Yeah, I, I would have to think that the, the, the reason it would fit is because um, I think it's a, more of a shared fan base than it would be necessarily a monster movie because, you know, 
for me personally, when I think of space horror monster movies, Wrathicon really doesn't doesn't fall into that. I mean, you know, you we always talk about how people are monsters because they do monstrous things or whatever, but you know, uh, it's not to me. I don't. I don't think. I don't think I, I. I put it in the realm of you know, like aliens or Prometheus or, you know, even like 2001: Space Odyssey. You know, with Hal and those. I think those to me would probably be more horror movies than than Wrath of Khan or any of the Star Trek movies for that matter. Yeah, but I, I think that Wrath of Khan does have that. It's. <sighs> It's the grittiest and most down-to-earth of the Star Trek films, I'd say, because they even mentioned it in the article. The first film was really, you know, expanding its boundaries, and there was no real villain that that really carried the piece in there. I mean, what was it? Like some sort of bizarre entity or or, or cosmic thing, you know, in the first movie. And they, they, sort, of, they sort of went beyond where you know, audiences just lost interest because it was, some say, over their heads because of the sci-fi element of it. Or uh, it just wasn't interesting at all. Whereas Khan, they bring it down to earth. There are a lot of horror elements in Wrath of Khan. Uh, I mean, even when you've got them going to to City Alpha, is it City Alpha Six or City Alpha Five? I forget where Khan was. No, it's five or six. It was both. Yeah, where he's banished. You know, they're uh, well, because no, because they talk. They, they that is part of the plot. Is that right? He thinks he's on five, but you know, he's really on right. six or. Right. Because, yeah, because City Alpha 5 blew up and, uh, you right. know, and so that's why they thought they were there. But you've got that element with where Khan is with his sort of tribe of, of super people. And they're all kind of very road warrior like, you know, very, kind of primitive in a way. But when Chekhov and, and um, I forget Paul Winfeld's character's name show up at the base, there's that torture scene where Khan drops the worm into their helmets, which is a very horrific element. It reminds me a lot of, uh, right. of actually an episode of um, Night Gallery, Rod Serling's Night Gallery. Uh, that was called. Like... Oh, yeah. And th- there was an episode of that where there was a guy that was falling in love with another guy's wife. And so he wanted to kill this guy. So he got this thing called an earwig. And he, he, if that ever goes inside your head, it, you'll die a most painful and horrific death. And he goes to drop it in the guy's ear, and somehow it gets in his own ear. And it's very the whole episode is it's going through his head, and he's 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 suffering, he's dying, but finally the ear makes its way through his brain and out the other side, and the guy's alive. And then, of course, comes the twist when a doctor examines him, and he goes, "Well, we have terrible news." He goes, "That earwig was female, and she laid eggs in your brain." Oh, that's nasty. Oh. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, that's nasty. That that was a very now that 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 would be more. Yeah, I mean that would, that's geared more towards that horror suspense kind of thing. Whereas, whereas I, I think that the yeah, I mean that that is a a, a nasty thing. You know, I mean, but right. again, to me, it doesn't necessarily qualify it as you know. I mean, this is a guy. You know, Con was Con was a guy that was incarcerated basically, and felt unjustly so, or un, it was unjustly cruel. And he wanted, you know, he he didn't. It's not like he got 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 God or something and decided that yeah, you wanted to repent or, you know, he was uh, rehabilitated. He he wanted revenge. So this right. is a good guy, bad guy thing more to me than it was a, you know, 
well, then it was more than it was a horror. Right. I mean, to me, what I what I would consider horror anyway. It was horrific, maybe, but not there's not. No, so there was no. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't gory or anything, but that I, I not I, really monster, you know, or horror. Well, that that thing going drama, to bad guy, good guy. I think I saw that first on like HBO or something as a kid or whatever channel they had it on back in the day. And when he put that thing into his ear, man, that just it gives me the it gives me like goosebumps now thinking about it. It was just, right. That was a creepy scene because you see the you see the worm drop on his face and then there's a close up and it's like little tongue is licking yeah. out oh. and making its way towards the ear. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, then you've got you've, you've got oh. the other scene where they oh. come across the abandoned spaceship in space. And, you know, because they've gotten the distress signal and they fly out to go help because it's Kirk's old flame and his son that I, I think he does or doesn't know about. Yeah. But they go aboard the ship. And, of course, there's a scene where, you know, you've got a body that pops out in front of Bones uh, and, and everybody on the ship has been slaughtered. And they find Chekhov like I think they even have the picture of it in Famous Monsters. And I, I think you thought Chekhov was dead at first, but he was actually alive. And, uh, you know, that, that had some horror elements to it. And it's directed by Nicholas Meyer, who directed a, a fantastic movie. I think I might have mentioned it before here. Time After Time, which is a film with Malcolm McDowell playing H.G. Wells. And David Warner plays Jack the Ripper. And they're friends in old London. And, and H.G. Wells has actually invented the time machine. And David Warner steals it because he's about to get found out that he's Jack the Ripper. And he goes to modern day America, which is 1979, San Francisco. And Malcolm and Dal follows him. And there's tons of horror elements in that. But my dad took me to see that in the theater as a kid. And it's pretty, it's a pretty creepy uh, and pretty violent PG movie. And, and so that was what he directed before he did Wrath of Khan. San Francisco. <laughs> I would have to say, thank God. When you said time after time, I thought you were going to start bringing up the Cindy Lauper song. I'm like, he's not going there, is he? Because <laughs> no, that's, that's a horror in itself. <laughs> I, that's a horror itself, to be honest with you. Oh, don't tell me you didn't sit in high school like weeping to that song, Lou Bellagrino. No, no, don't even get me started. <laughs> listen, I listened to what my mother listened to. It was like Kenny Rogers. I think the, the gambler was on in my house like 50 times a day. I think I had a poster. My mom went to a concert about a Kenny Bulls, Kenny Rogers poster put on the wall. But anyway, that being said, that horrific story, let's not go there. But um, no, I mean, I I honestly, until you just said that thing about the ear, I actually kind of forgot about that. And then you just said it. And I just, oh, it's creeping me out, man. I really have to say it. it was, there was no CGI involved in that, man. I don't even know. I don't know if they stuck a rubber thing in his ear and whirled it around or something, but that was pretty nasty. And you've yeah. got a lot of gore in here when people are getting killed. Like, it's not that, like, the way they get. And, I mean, even the re- original Star Trek series had some horror elements to it. But, um, I mean, this one you've got, when people get killed, especially like Khan, you've got, like, that burn makeup on him and he's all burned and fried up. And uh, Scotty's, what is it? Scotty's nephew that's played by Ike Eisenman. He gets killed. And I, I think in the theatrical version, you don't see it. But in the TV version, you know, Scotty walks through the doors carrying his dead body and he's all burned right. up. And he's like, he never left his post, you know, because uh, everybody else ran away from their post when in, in engineering when when Khan was firing torpedoes at him. Well, it would have been if it had been Mr. Sulu, he'd have stayed there and blown them all up. It's like in uh, Green Beret. <laughs> Oh, I love that. Yeah, the Green Berets, Max. And I remember seeing that as a kid, too, being like, that's 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 Sulu from Star Trek. There you go. Hey, talk about a callback, right? Yeah. Oh, seriously. 
Did we talk about that movie before? I think we did, right? We did when we did we uh, when, when we were we talking about Takai, our we yeah. did the segment on George Takai, yeah. Oh yeah! Oh my gosh! Still, hey, as a kid, know. always made me cry watching the end of that movie, where he's looking for Peterson. Peterson, <laughs> it's the hardest job, General and on NBU. And John Wayne goes after him. Hey, Peterson's gone, Ham Chung. Like he's like, <laughs> kid's name is Ham Chung. Like it's like, oh my god, Yeah, I, I bought the box set uh, a couple of Christmases back. Uh, with that had like the animated series, the Star Trek animated series, the the original series, and all the films. I probably watched it then. It's my favorite. I'll always watch it. And yeah. surprisingly, uh, Meyer went on to direct uh, Undiscovered Country, which was the last Star Trek movie, which was actually pretty good too. That was a good movie. Yeah, I like. Yeah, that. they were all pretty good from this point forward. Other than the you know the one that most people don't like after this is uh, the one that Kirk directed that Shatner directed. Star Trek uh, Five. I, I mean, I think the it's kind of weird. I guess showing my age or whatever. But I mean, I just for me, I mean, seeing Wrath of Khan when I I remember seeing the previews or the commercials for it or whatever. You know, the theatrical trailers that they put on TV to get you to go to the theater. Uh, you know, seeing Ricardo Montalban as as Khan. You know, I'm like, hey, that's the guy from Fantasy Island, right? You know, and it <laughs> it seemed like. You know, I mean, that's, that was my, my, yeah, and he and was, was only and he in... was, yeah, and he was, he's selling, selling the, uh, the, the Chrysler Cordoba, you know, the, the rich Corinthian leather, you know, I mean, so, so I thought it was, um, it was interesting to see him go from that, that really suave, you know, debonair kind of, uh, cool cat character, you know, to, to a character like Khan, you know, it showed, it right. just showed his chops as an actor, I think. Well, they talk about that in the, I believe it's in this article where they mentioned that yep. he was sort of didn't want to do it because he was like, he was known as the, like you said, the suave Mr. Rourke on Fantasy mm-hmm. Island. Right. And he's about as, even in the original episode, the space seed, he's decked out in this cool red jumpsuit. He's got his man bun. He's very suave and debonair looking mm-hmm. in this one. He's like, he's like this post-apocalyptic road warrior guy. He's just got that open chest shirt he's got long hair my kind of my kind of guy yeah well he's very he's very gritty and uh with and the long hair and uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, and just the the guys that they've they've got you know the um his crew of of, of misfits there it's it's kind of interesting the the way that they changed him from that because they're supposed to be uh that he was part of the gen, uh, eugenics war and these were genetically superior beings which again kind of gives it a little horror element, and I, I always I always thought about the Genesis planet having kind of like a Frankenstein right. quality to it, like that type of thing, you know. How he looked on TV when when uh, he was on TV versus in the movie, it was a huge change because he was just well, it was a red jumpsuit, right? And he was very he was right. quite neat and you know whatever. Yeah, very interesting, very interesting. Well, and the fact that you see Kirk scared in this, yeah, you know, when he's left, yeah, you never see that abandoned. Music. And that's when he screams like Khan, like he's furious. He's like, I can't oh, yeah. believe, you know, you, you've done, he loses his cool. Like, you know. Right. The, yeah, I think he only did that once on the TV show when they like, I don't know, put something in his head. So he was completely. Yeah, that, that was when he was like split. Like he went like yeah. cowardly Kirk and, uh, you know, brave Kirk. Like they split his personality yeah. or something like that. Yes. But, Anything else you guys want to wrap up with in our point counterpoint? 
horror versus non-horror. I mean, I, I think Lou, uh, I mean, I think Max is is essentially right. I, I wouldn't go if I was looking for horror. I wouldn't go to see Wrath of Khan. But if I wanted some some good sci-fi, some cool Star Trek with a a little uh, seasoning of horror in it, then Wrath of Khan is is definitely the best of that bunch that you're gonna go. Yeah. Watch. So you're saying if you wanted to see that something like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the Wrath of Khan wouldn't quite be in that category. Is that what you're saying? Not quite. Although it would be kind of cool to see what toby hooper would have done with a star trek film that would have been interesting yeah it's well we can go into that a whole nother section we do that well i think uh we've prepared this crowd for warp 10 excitement (laughs) (laughs) i need warp 11 i can't hold it any longer (laughs) and for those of you don't know max is really only 32 years old he just pretends like he's older so that he can throw some experience into the discussion. He's really only 32. As a matter of fact, he probably never saw Ratha Khan because he was too young. So we'll just say that. Yeah, my mom wouldn't let me. <laughs> she wouldn't take me because I was too little. Well, somewhere in the darkest reaches of the universe, a battle is about to begin. But we won't be part of it because we're signing off. I'm Rich Hurley, also known as Dr. Durant. You can find me on YouTube at Dr. Durant Sanctum where I discuss all things horror, vintage costumes, movies, toys, what have you. Come on in and have a good time. Max Overnighter, and uh, I don't have a podcast, so I listen to everybody else's. And I don't have a YouTube channel, so I listen watch everybody else's. But you'll find me lurking around on Meagle-like. Sometimes you'll find me on the My Meagle-like uh, group nonsense that we do. Sometimes I'm lurking around the uh, mid-modern stuff and uh, batman stuff so hey if you see me out there just stop by say hey uh so i'm lou malagrana we have a wonderful facebook group called mega like uh, i have a youtube channel called my mega like and we have a website my like.com and it's the funny thing is it has the word mego in it we're pretty much everything except the, just a tiny splash of mego with everything else this is Bill Blair, the Guinness World Record holder for the most special effect makeup characters portrayed in a career. Watch Star Trek? <laughs> yeah, you've seen me. Check it out. And thanks for listening to Star Pod Trek. Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, a novel by Vonda N. McIntyre, screenplay by Jack B. Sowards, based on a story by Harve Bennett and Jack B. Sowards. The extraordinary new novel based on Paramount Pictures' Supreme Space Adventure. We got a chance to read this novel and compare it to the movie. What'd you think about the novel overall? I thought the novel was good. I mean, it, it, it added some things to the movie. Very much so, like reading Star Trek the motion picture novel. You have to read the novel along with the movie to get the full picture. Why? Because, just as in the TMP novel... This Wrath of Khan novel is based on the screenplay. So essentially, you're getting things that were cut out for time restraints, especially. I always wish that they would just release the whole movie of all the scenes that were scrapped. But this novel gives us a whole picture, something that we knew about somehow, some way. It was a big buzz that, spoiler alert, in the book... It clearly relates, and in the script, clearly relates that Savick is half Romulan, half Vulcan. Yes, and that's they, a big, they didn't that's a say big that one. in the movie. They did not. It was in the script, but they, but it just it got cut out of the movie. It was cut out because they felt the average person 
didn't know what a Vulcan was, but they could kind of figure it out because Mr. Spock was so famous. Adding another race in there, it would be too much for the average person to handle. I don't think people are that stupid, or they probably would just dismiss it. They wouldn't care. But this adds a lot of characterization to Savick. I mean, I mean, I, you know, love that part of her character, the fact, the fact that she was half Romulan, which was something I always liked about her back then. Of course, later, then when they added, when they had made Star Trek three, they just made her a full Vulcan. But, uh, but yeah, it, it would have been more interesting if they could have examined her as a half Romulan, half Vulcan, which they did in later novels, and that was good. I mean, I like how, you know, the book had her tutoring Peter Preston, and she had more of a relationship with him. And that was good because the movie hardly ever showed him. This book has more Savick in it. That's what makes it awesome. Yeah, and everybody loved Savick. She <laughs> is such a welcoming character. And the idea that was being tossed around was this was going to be, pardon the pun, but this was supposed to be the next generation of Star Trek. Even we heard that term being tossed around in Starlog that the next generation moving forward could potentially be David Marcus and Lieutenant Savick. Yeah, I mean, they because it was it was time, you know, with the, all the original actors were getting older, so it was time to introduce new characters to carry the torch, but then somehow it, it just didn't happen. They decided to go in a different direction with these movies. And regarding David Marcus, the, the novel actually spent some time getting into his head, getting to understand his personality, his drive, the understanding of why he was doing the things and saying the things that he was doing, which that's what a good novel does. Because it's only a two-hour movie, we had to spend the bulk of the time on Kirk and Spock. That's just the way it is. But the novel fleshes out these characters much more so. And the novel also had more about the um the characters on the regular one space station yes and all the other all the other characters that like we, we didn't even know their names they they were named in the book and we find out that two of them had had designed a what a, a video game or something which <laughs> which was really interesting and and one of them was a delton which i couldn't recognize anyone in the movie as being a delton but but things like that you know just to flesh it out more it it really made for a good read now what are the things that we do know the most iconic scene in the Wrath of Khan, one of the most iconic scenes, is when Kirk screams, Khan! Well, we know the original script was just Khan, just like it is in the book. William Shatner went full throttle with screaming Khan. So I've got to say that part of the book was not exciting because William Shatner made that memorable. <laughs> Well, I mean, in a book, it's you have to get that um, that anxiety across in a different way because it didn't have five know. exclamation points, and 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 Khan was only four letters, not nine letters, like Kirk made it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's different when you have um something with with actors instead of just reading a book. Yeah, it's a you know, it's a different effect. Also, since we brought up the name Khan, we get more motivation in the book. We see that Khan, his desire for revenge was based on his wanting to protect his people and give them a better life. And that made sense. I mean, he was the leader, and he was the one who accepted um, living on on that planet, Seti Alpha 5. And we're able to get more information about Joachim, because he was able to give first-hand information on how Khan transformed, 
while he was on SETI Alpha 5. These are details that, as much as I love The Wrath of Khan, I realize it would be impossible to make a four-hour movie adding in all these layers of complexity to, to the characters. Where That's why it's so necessary to read the book. Yeah, the book fills out a lot of stuff, so it, it's, it's definitely a, um, a must-read for anybody who's a fan of the movie. This is Nicholas Meyer, and you are listening to Star Pod Trek, the podcast that celebrates Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future. So our ship in Starfleet International, uh, the USS Warner von Braun, had their 30th anniversary party, and it was a lot of fun. They had they had a cake, and it was a potluck. Everybody brought uh, a dish, and they had a nice award ceremony gave out promotions and awards, and also had a memorial service for some people who had passed away. And the meeting the meeting was, well, basically a party that was open, so anybody could come, and we had a lot of fun. It was just a, a nice afternoon. I mean, 30 years for a chapter in a club is a long time. you got to figure the Starfleet International is coming close to 50 years as, as a fan club. So more than... So the USS Werner von Braun being active for 30 years, that's impressive. It is. A lot of um, Star Trek chapters come and go, so it's great that they've lasted so long. And, and yeah, not, like out of the active members now, none of them were there at part of the original ship. But, they, but there were some members, I mean, there were some people who were there at this party who had been members a long time ago, so that, that was pretty cool. Yeah, our commander, Richard Trulson always goes out of his way to make these events absolutely amazing. So here's to 30 more years of the USS Werner von Braun out of Huntsville, Alabama. Eleven's alive with Fantasy Island. On the next Fantasy Island, you'll meet some very interesting people. Miss Bevis is haunted by that strange and enigmatic character in Wuthering Heights, Heathcliff. She belongs with her husband. You have no right. I have no right. Who poses my wife? Fantasy Island, Monday at 7 on 11 Alive. Next time on Stand By, Lights, Camera, Action. Hello, I'm Leonard Nimoy. Clothes make the man, or so they say. And in the movies, that's certainly true. Next time on Stand By, Lights, Camera, Action, we'll see if clothes make the creature. When we look at Return of the Jedi, we'll learn how wardrobe helps Monty Python explain the meaning of life. And we'll see how con man Jackie Gleason dresses the part for the Sting 2. So join me as we dress to shoot on standby lights, camera, action. Only on Nickelodeon. Saturday, they're together again. It's a go. But on different sides of the law. Don't make me take you down. William Shatner versus Leonard Nimoy on T.J. Hooker. Tomorrow... Starlog Magazine, issue number 72, cover date July 1983, special 7th anniversary issue. Communications, letters to Starlog Magazine. Sharon L. Barnett from La Crosse, Indiana, writes, I definitely had to watch Star Trek The Motion Picture in its television debut. Will you please explain to me why I and others put down good money in theaters and better money for a copy of this film, only to find the television version 
which included fifteen minutes previously cut, was so much better and worth much more. Some movies need to be cut for my viewing, and I certainly don't mind the editing of bloody and violent scenes, but the added footage made an incredible difference for me. I could have saved many dollars by waiting for the television premiere. Oh well, gripe, gripe, we're never happy, are we? But I sure would like to sweep up those editor's floors when they're finished up. I agree. I never understood why the TV versions of movies had more content than the theatrical production. Yeah, the thing is, you, you if you know that they added something to the TV version, you want to watch it and see if you can recognize what they added. <laughs> I remember watching Superman the movie on TV and being astounded at the parts where he was walking through fire in, Le- in Lex Luthor's lair. I was like, man, I don't think I've ever, like, I was starting to question myself. I don't remember that. And I, I only saw this movie a couple of years ago. And I was like, well, I was younger. Maybe I didn't remember it. But it was like, it, it was such a strong scene. And come to find out, that was bonus footage for TV. They did the same thing with Star Trek The Motion Picture. Why would you add more footage for television? Usually television subtracts content. It doesn't add content. I couldn't figure it out. So I, I agree with this this person that wrote wrote this letter. Why? I, I just don't I don't understand it. Steve Hedden, Salt Lake City, Utah, says Hats off to the film editor of Star Trek the Motion Picture on ABC Sunday night at the movies on February twentieth. Who edited the T V broadcast? They should receive credit for making the story flow more evenly than the movie released in nineteen seventy nine. Thank you, ABC, for treating all the Trekkers in the nation to extra footage. Thanks also to Paramount Pictures for releasing the extra footage on ABC. I think Paramount should look into gathering any spare footage and re-edit Star Trek The Motion Picture into a movie with a more coherent plot. They could re-release it like Close Encounters of the Third Kind Special Edition on videotapes and discs or in theaters. ABC's broadcast raised an interesting observation. On TV, commercials successfully broke the action up into interesting segments. Good job, editor. I think Star Trek may work best on TV. I wish Gene Roddenberry, Harve Bennett, and crew could get together for two or three months a year and film a couple new episodes to be broadcast six months apart. Paramount could release the episodes on video. I love the universe of Star Trek. I think its future lies in combining the hard science of science fiction seen in the motion picture with the adventure of art seen so richly in Star Trek II. I also think Trek should grow and obtain new characters or actors to eventually replace the original ones. The triad of Kirk, Spock, McCoy is one of the ingredients that makes Trek work so well. This could be repeated with a female captain, Lieutenant Savick, Logic, and Dr. David Marcus Emotion. The original cast could stay on as supporting characters. Whatever would best fit the interests of the actors and the universe of Star Trek. The British TV show Doctor Who grows with different actors playing the main character. This is the 80s and time for Trek to evolve into something new. Evolution and growth aren't easy and it sometimes hurts, but think of the exciting possibilities. As fans, let's welcome any evolution and growth. The human adventure is just beginning. 
lengthy letter, but a lot to absorb. First so we, off, yeah. first off, he goes into saying it's good we got additional footage on ABC because it makes the story flow better. Yeah, the additional footage worked with the movie. And it's one of those things. <laughs> Star Trek the motionless picture, some people complained. There was too much motionlessness, added motionlessness in this cut. I could see that. I mean, I remember distinctly going to Tommy K's video when we got a VCR, I think it was around 1986 or something, and renting the version that said, you looked on the cassette case and it said something like, additional 15 minutes of footage like this is the tv version not the the movie version me being excited about it me saying wow they kind of should have trimmed some of it because it's it's too much it's too much of 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 this motionless his viewpoint is more is better there's two ways to look at it as a star trek fan i'd like to see you know like all the footage they filmed really and put it all in i agree 100 percent, i agree and and you know because when you're watching it at home i mean you can stop it whenever you want i mean if you if you do feel like it's like it's too long to sit through it at once, you can just come back later, or you can get at least pause it and go to the bathroom and come back. I mean, these kind of things, you know. I mean, it helps to watch it at home, and and then it can be as long as as you want to sit there and watch it. And we're not talking about the extended version that's on Blu-ray right now. That the newest director's cut is incredible. That is the proper editing. But I see where he's coming from. Also, I love the fact which we touched on just earlier, that Lieutenant Savick has so much potential. David Marcus has so much potential. This is what fans were clamoring for, to move forward with Star Trek. To, to have younger people and to, to move forward with, with the franchise with new characters. I, I don't know how, how it would have worked, his idea of like keeping the original characters as, as background. I don't either. <laughs> I would have liked to have seen them develop on their own. I mean, have them get promoted and say that they, you know, went went somewhere else. They're still working somewhere else in Starfleet. And, of course, David Marcus being a civilian, you would have to see how they would work him in. But it almost seems like a precursor to Deep Space Nine. Because you had civilians being like Quark, being core characters on that show. Being Yeah, that you could do it in, in that kind of setting, the way Deep Space Nine was. That's why it was made that way. Can you imagine if you had something on the regular space station, a series, a medical Star Trek series? At least or a science going, one, yes. Yes, a science one, something like, yeah, of course, it would be fantastic. That would have been neat to see, yeah. And he goes on to compare it to Doctor Who. Hey, you can make this series go on without the original cast. Yeah, well, which we did find out later. But he's one of the few fans that would say that, because no one thought Star Trek could go on without Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, especially. Yeah, that is true. It took some, it took some getting used to when, when, they, when they created The Next Generation. I love the ending statement. As fans, let's welcome any evolution and growth. The human adventure is just beginning. But it is good that they kept making the movies back then. <laughs> no doubt about it. Hey, greetings and welcome. This is Burt Bruce. We're going to deal with William Shatner, the schizoid superstar. It's a very good interview. The year was uh, 1983. The month was July. Shatner means a lot to me. And Now, let me say, I'm more of a Spock guy, which is true. Leonard Nimoy was my, uh, he was my guy. Leonard Nimoy is obviously uh, the reason I think most people got drawn into Star Trek. But Shatner's the filet mignon. He's the guy who's going to tear into the deep meat and uh, give you the acting portion. 
let's face it. If you're watching Star Trek and you had uh, 45 minutes of just the monologues of, of uh, Leonard Nimoy as Spock, it would be a little bit monotonous. You need Kirk to come in with his uh, histrionics and his uh, flair for the dramatic. You have to balance the two out. And, of course, then you have McCoy. So you've got the triumvirate of the uh, passionate McCoy, the histrionic uh, Kirk, and then the uh, thoughtful and logical Spock. It's a beautiful combination. It's what makes that show. Because, let's face it, the effects in 1966, 67, 68, those were not the best effects. But we didn't know any better. They looked pretty good for, our, you know, for a television budget. The Enterprise looked pretty good. You know, they did what they could with the money they had. And it was, uh, at the time, it was pretty darn good. This article is very good. And it's my honor and privilege to tell you about Bill Shatner. Call him Bill, not William. At the beginning of the uh, issue, he... Uh, Proceeds to tell us about T.J. Hooker. And uh, there's filming a scene where he's uh, running along a uh, dolly track uh, again and again. And he said most people would get exhausted by it. But the uh, writer, Ed Naha, noticed that uh, Shatner actually became more enthusiastic and more energized. And Shatner uh, tried to stay in shape uh, when during his off time by running. He was a jogger. But he said he been unable to do that during T.J. Hooker because they shot, he said, whereas on Star Trek, they might do 30 uh, setups or scenes per uh, day. They could get as many as 80 setups per day on uh, T.J. Hooker, which is phenomenal. I don't even know how you do that. 80 setups is just spectacular. Was he exaggerating? Yeah, probably. But, you know, it's Shatner. We allow it. In the episode uh, in the spring, he had filmed with uh, Leonard Nimoy Leonard played a fellow uh, police officer whose daughter had been raped. And Leonard was going to go out and get justice for himself, and they had a fist fight. So you might want to YouTube that and look that one up. I bet that's an interesting scene to watch, the two of them beating the hell out of each other. Yes. Shatner was a diminutive man, and from what I'd understood, during his Star Trek time, he wore lifts or uh, elevated shoes to appear taller. But they list him as being five foot ten. I've heard friends who've met him in person and said they did not think he's five feet ten. I've never met him, don't know him, wouldn't pay the 50 But He came to Columbia, South Carolina many years ago, 50 bucks an autograph at the Jamil Temple of all places, a Shriners uh, temple, Freemasons. He came and it was 50 bucks, and even at that time I was a cheap, uh, frugal person, and uh, although I would like to have met him, I'm not going to pay 50 bucks to get an autograph. I'm sorry. That was a lot of money back then, and I didn't do it. Now, I kind of wished I did. But uh, from all accounts, he was very nice and gracious and took pictures. And the people who uh, did go and meet him said they had a nice experience with him. So you've got to give him credit. He's never he's never been rude to the fans, except for the Saturday Night episode, Saturday Night Live episode, where he said, get a life. But at this time, in this article, he mentions that he was on Fridays and parodied Captain Kirk. Uh, I haven't seen that episode, or I haven't rewatched it, I should say. The other thing that he mentions in the article, I'm going to be all over the place here, so I'm not going to go in a linear order with this uh, article. He considered himself a comedian. Now, has he said things that have made me laugh? Well, occasionally, I've laughed at his uh, his bits, and he does uh, try to be appear as comical. Does he always succeed? Mm, he's a hit or miss comedian. But he thinks he's funny, and that's what counts. He uh, goes on to also mention about Star Trek, the motion picture, and that it was a disaster. His words, not mine. 
And we're, because that is kind of interesting, we're going to read that directly. If I can look it up here. Shatner suddenly found himself in the center of a pop culture hurricane. This is concerning uh, Star Trek being uh, repeated on syndicated television all over the USA continuously. He was in demand at conventions, on lecture tours, on talk shows. He managed to weather the Trek storm with good grace and then some. And then some 10 years after the show's cancellation at the hands of NBC, he would show up at Paramount Pictures with his old video cronies for a widescreen class reunion, the oh-so-somber Star Trek, the motion picture. Shatner shrugs his shoulders, indicating that at a certain point, he lost control of his destiny and was swept away in the Trek swell. Suddenly, we were there again. It was eerie, nice, but eerie. We had no idea that the first film would be a disaster. His words, not mine. He calls Star Trek The Motion Picture a disaster. I want that noted for all time. Back to the article. We never knew it was falling apart while we were shooting, said Shatner. We didn't have an ending to the script when we started, but we had months to play around with solving it. With all the high-priced talent around, we were sure that someone would come up with a corker of a finale. Somebody would certainly create something which made sense. He offers a bemused sigh. We never got it together. I still think that the essence of the script is quite valid. What a great science fiction concept. Voyager goes out into space, becomes ensnared by a mechanical planet, and gets sent back to Earth like a monomaniacal apostle. Marvelous. Shatner goes on to say, We were all very enthused about that concept. What we didn't know was that while we were shooting, there was almost no coordination between the live action and the special effects work. The time they had for the film's final assembly was so limited that Paramount never had a sneak preview. Nobody connected with the film ever sat in the theater and saw the movie with an audience before it opened. After you've spent nearly two years on a project, that's essential. But by that point, you're just too close to a movie to judge it objectively. The finished Star Trek, the motion picture, was really two movies. One about Star Trek, one about special effects. Had 15 minutes been trimmed out of the released version, I think it would have been a different, stronger film. I also felt that characters weren't as fully realized as they could have been. We certainly were dwarfed by the special effects. It was a very confusing time for me. One felt helpless. I remember having lunch with the studio head who asked me what made Star Trek so successful. I couldn't tell him anything. What was I going to say? Characters, development, and story? If I told him that, he would have said, yeah, but we need big effects to compete with Star Wars. As a result, you wound up with a weak movie, which that's an actually, it's a very good uh, encapsulation of what happened with Star Trek, the motion picture. You came to watch, you know, your buddies play together, Scotty and Uhura and Chekhov and Sulu almost get no dialogue, let alone get to interact with uh, Spock and Kirk and McCoy. It's a very bland uh, film. They didn't capture the essence. And Robert Wise, wonderful director, probably the wrong guy. The second guy, Meyer, Nicholas Meyer, just understood Star Trek and understood what the, uh, the tone needed to be for a Star Trek film. And, of course, Star Trek II was, of course, to my mind, it's the finest of all the Star Trek films. I think they, they nailed it. You're not going to get better than uh, Ricardo Montalban as Khan Nudi and Singh and, uh, and Kirk acting his brains out. And Spock, of course, is wonderful in that film as well. He really, you know, he, he brings the Spock. Now, back to T.J. Hooker. T.J. Hooker, did I watch it? Yeah, I watched it. It wasn't that good. It was a your subpar 80s cop 
take that, you know, run, jump, shoot, burn rubber. And, and Shatner brags on the thing, but he's in it. What's he going to say? No, this is a lemon and I hate it. It had Adrian Zamed. If you know who Adrian Zamed is, you have my condolences. Think it had Heather Locklear. She's great, but she's still Heather Locklear. So it was a young cast with a 50-year-old Kirk running around solving uh, police crime, which uh, basically he's Angie Dickinson without the skirt, which is fine. You know, it, it was a successful show in its time. It did well. People liked Shatner. To me, he had all that goodwill of the Star Trek movies. You would have thought he would have tried to go after more movie roles, but I guess he understood episodic TV, and that's what he did. The thing about Shatner, which, what makes him an icon, is that this guy, in his uh, decades-long career, he's co-written books, and I mean a lot of books, both fiction and nonfiction. So even if he just provided the outline, that's still a lot of content. He did spoken word records. He was... Uh, Noted for winning several, there are so many awards that he has won. I can't even, I, I there of all the uh, Canadian order stuff that he won, just because his of his Canadian heritage, I, I don't have time. I don't have time to tell you everything he did. He's Shatner, man's ninety some years old and still going strong, still attending conventions. He'd be in a Star Trek movie if you'd let him. He, he's boundless energy. I will give him that. For a little short fat man. He has boundless energy, and uh, I've grown to become more of a Kirkman over time, even though, you know, at the time, obviously, Spock was the key figure for most of us who watched Star Trek. It was him, you know, solving problems and being logical. But Kirk comes in, and he, uh, he'll he punch a Klingon in the face. He doesn't care. <laughs> anyway, he's a great, in the tradition of Horatio Hornblower, who he was modeled after, He's the great epic hero of the future. You're not going to get better. Luke Skywalker, yeah, he's a great epic uh, Jedi. Can't go wrong with Luke Skywalker. But Kirk was first. Kirk came in and youngest captain ever of the Starship Enterprise. And he just came in and did a great job of uh, creating a uh, character. The one thing that he does mention here and that we will mention, when you think of uh, Andy Griffith, you think of Sheriff Taylor. And that's his typecasting. Of course, he did become Madlock. Uh, Barney Fife is Don Knotts. Don Knotts, even in his movies, was playing a version of Barney Fife. That typecasting is so... It can be detrimental to a career, so much so that you don't get to be anything else. And Shatner overcame that somehow. He was able to uh, take and make more of a career than anyone could ever even imagine. From movies to television to the spoken word via vinyl albums, which I owned, to uh, books, literature, if you will. Now, granted, did he write the books? Nah, he probably had a lot of help. But that's his name on it, and that's his outline and his concept. So you've got to give the man his due. I just want to say that he overcame the typecasting. He went on to have a very successful career. Of course, he loves... They mentioned in the article about his love of Dobermans, his dogs with him in his trailer on the set of T.J. Hooker. And uh, they also mention, uh, in the past articles I've read, he, he's a big equestrian fan and loves horses and has had a long career with horses. And he's had uh, four wives. One, unfortunately, passed away. She drowned in their swimming pool. But he's had four wives. I think he's got two daughters and a son-in-law. And he's uh, his legacy is large. I mean, the man has got nothing to apologize for. He's kind of done it all. So... 
if you're a Kirk fan, as I am now, I mean, I always was a Kirk fan, but obviously, you know, Leonard Nimoy, if we're going to rank it, Leonard Nimoy's number one, William Shatner's number two, obviously, to me. But does that mean I don't admire the man? No, I admire him. He uh, gets a lot of negative publicity from his co-cast members, but part of that might be sour grapes and a little bit of jealousy on their part, because from when he talks, he doesn't. He, I'm going to say it for lack of a better word, he doesn't ship talk his co-workers. He tries to be positive and just dwell on the positive stuff. And so, you know, if they if they say negative things, that's on them. Anyway, it was a wonderful article. Recommend you go find issue 72 and read about William Shatner circa 1983 and learn more about the Shat, as they call him. I want credit for this whole episode. I did not try to imitate William Shatner, nor would I. A lot of people have a bad Shatner impression. I'm not one of them. The Making of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, by Alan Asherman. Or if you're a Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan fan, you have to have this book in your collection. We know that there was a making of book for the motion picture. This is a different writer, though. That one was written by Susan Sackett and Gene Roddenberry. I think it's interesting that they took someone outside of Star Trek production to look behind the scenes. This book has dozens of photos, illustrations, and we know Alan Asherman, deep background in working with Star Trek. I mean, his Star Trek compendium is legendary. Star Trek interview book, as well as who's who in Star Trek. In fact, he had a good life. Born April 21st, 1947, and unfortunately, he recently passed away on September 22nd. 2023. He was 76 years old. His books were very informative, and I like how he, he did all the research and put it all together. I mean, he just, he, he came out with some of the, the best reference books. Yeah, he was very involved in DC Comics as well, and when you talk about other forms of science fiction, he jumped over to all different sides. He was he was kind of like a Greg Cox in the way, Peter David, John Jackson Miller. There's some people that just know everything about every fictional universe. Alan Ashman was one of those people. But with regards to this book, The Making of Star Trek, The Wrath of Khan, it paints a picture of the whole Star Trek universe, gives us some background on the actors, as well as the production, and how the movie was put together. A couple details that we'd like to share with our listeners, one being talking to Harv Bennett. We know Harv Bennett worked on Six Million Dollar Man and other shows. And he fully attests to the fact that He's not a Star Trek fan. He actually had to binge all the episodes of Star Trek in order to understand what direction that they wanted to go through. And the question comes up, after you made up your mind to go ahead and work on Star Trek, how difficult was it to accomplish? Notice what Harb says. I'd describe this entire 18 months as a series of minefields. Nothing was easy. It seems easy now. There wasn't a single achievement, decision, step forward, that wasn't a problem. I don't mean to glamorize my role as the person who started with, okay, I'll do it, and ended up with the picture, but in fact, I don't know how I did it. Everything that had to go right went right, and I think of a hundred places where I could have happily said, it's no use, we can't. He goes on to say that roughly one-third of the episodes of the original series, he felt that could work as making a sequel to some character or or some situation in this movie. But he felt strongly about Space Seed. Imagine how history would be different 
if he didn't choose Space Seed as the springboard for this next Star Trek movie? Yeah, it could have been very different. I, I mean, Khan was, was really, like, not even as popular a character until until Wrath of Khan came out. Totally agree. And, in fact, I love this under the Leonard Nimoy section because it's a series of interviews with the personalities involved in the Wrath of Khan. He asks, what was your working relationship with Nicholas Meyer? He's a terrific guy. Tremendous energy and very, very bright. I would say probably there are two sides to the coin when you're working with Nick in that he has a wonderful childlike energy and excitement about what he does, and it's very infectious. At the same time, that same childlike quality can sometimes be exasperating, but I got along with him wonderfully. I found him sometimes very obstinate when he believed that he was right about a point, and often he was. But at the same time, he was really willing to listen to your point of view, and in a number of cases would say, let me think about that. And a couple of days later, he would come back and say, I think you're right. Let's do it that way. About something that had to be done a week hence. I have no negative feelings about Nick at all. I really enjoyed working with him. Wow. W what a fantastic testament to the professionalism of Nicholas Meyer as director. Yeah, and, well, the thing is, Nick was, was young back then. He was still considered a young guy, so... But here's the deal. Anytime you deal with young, younger people that are managers, sometimes they dig their heels in because they want to show who's boss. Whereas this paints a picture of him being balanced. Yeah, he's the director. He has to have a standard set. He has a vision. But if something comes up that needs to be addressed, he lets do for a little bit and then make a decision on it. Yeah, the sign of a good leader. I mean, the, and he knew what he was doing and he had confidence in himself. I think that's the reason he didn't try to be such a um, a jerk about things. And this question leads up to essentially where we are in our timeline of analyzing Star Trek. How do you think they'll handle the next picture regarding Mr. Spock? Notice what Leonard says. There are various ways to approach it. You could deal with the reincarnation or resurrection very quickly and a temporarily aberrated form of some kind that has to be transmuted back to what we recognize as Spock. You could do a picture on the other side. You could do a story where you take the audience into that existence where Spock is now. You have the regenerating effect of the Genesis planet functioning on that body. And suppose that body is regenerating. And suppose that during that regenerative process we find a way to the other side. Experience what Spock is going through during that process and where he is, who he's seeing, who he's talking to, what he is experiencing. What is he thinking? Does he want to go back? You have a lot of distinct possibilities, so you play the other side of the existence before you bring him back, assuming you're going to. You could also do a picture about Spock in which he hardly appears. You could have this wonderful adventure dealing with the question of what the planet's effect is on Spock's body, with everybody realizing there's a potential resurrection here at the end of the film. So you could do any one of three approaches, or even more. There are a lot more. It's a question of execution. In this particular project, in the next one, my feeling is that there are a lot of wonderful tracks laid down, and it's a question of choosing one and executing it very, very well. I don't have any doubt that a wonderful story could be written, that there are wonderful stories available to be written, 
It's just a matter of execution. What do you think? So, yeah, that's he, he hit on there what they wound up doing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I like also how he said, in this film and the next film. See, he's kind of saying it's a trilogy. Yeah, it wasn't really planned from the beginning, but that's what they did. So you wonder if he had some inside intel. Well, at this time, they didn't know he was going to be the director, right? Not at all. Who knows what happens at these power lunches? Incredible book, behind-the-scenes details. If you're a hardcore Rathacon fan, you must read Alan Asherman's The Making of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. I'm Bob Greenberger. When I want to hear more about The Final Frontier, I always listen to Star Power Trek. Anniversary greetings from the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and beyond. Happy 7, Starlog. This is an annual event where Starlog solicits comments from those in the world of science fiction, and especially Star Trek. George Takei writes, Congratulations on your seven-year trek. We're up to warp seven and holding steady. All the best wishes. The great bird of the galaxy, Gene Roddenberry, says, Happy birthday to my favorite science fiction space magazine. Alan Dean Foster writes, If wishes were fishes and starships niches, I'd have a terrific poem going, but it does not rhyme at all, so all I can say is congratulations on another successful year. How about Robert Block, the writer of Wolf in the Fold? S is for the seven years you flourished. T is for the Trekkies loyal and true. A is for the artists you have nourished. R is for the readers, old and new. L is for the log entries you give us. O's for all those other things you do. Group them together. They spell star log. So happy birthday, all of you. Well, that was good. <laughs> that was a nice really, poem. That was we talk about some of these things. You look at it and they just say, yeah, they're just writing one or two words. They don't care. Kind of like Stephen Collins. What did he write? Keep on keeping on. Okay. Yeah, he just took that postcard with the request for comments and just he kept on. Whereas Robert Block put some thought into it. How about Isaac Asimov? Anurin Bivan on visiting Devon said Starlog at Seven's My Notion of Heaven. P.S. If you never heard of Anurin Bivan and don't know where Devon is, then you'll miss the fine points of the above. On the other hand, if you've never heard of Anurin Bivan and don't know where Devon is, it's your own fault. I figure he would put something witty. I don't know what that is. I don't know, but it's interesting. Probably from one of his books. Leonard Nimoy comments. Long life and prosperity to Starlog. You're a class act. And finally, we have something thought-provoking from William Rostler. He's the author of Star Trek Biographies. This is the era of the specialty magazine. There is hardly a hobby, fad, perversion, interest, sport, or weirdness that does not have a magazine devoted to it. Some serve the subject well, some so-so. Starlog has consistently kept up with what was happening in the SF and fantasy field, both specifically and in general, and I congratulate them. There is no truth to the rumor, however, that Starlog Press plans to publish such magazines as Twit, American Nerd, The Sexual Anorexia Digest, Weird Hobbies International, <laughs> The Turtle Racer's Guide, or Starlog's Girls of Star Trek. <laughs> Thanks for listening to us. Don't forget to subscribe to our show and give us positive feedback on your podcast app. 
Your five-star reviews are always welcome. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu. All I have to do is push this little red button. 